Let's now together open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 12 as we continue our way through this glorious epistle that we have been working through for about two years now. And as we have come in in the last couple weeks, transitioned into Romans chapter 12, we've been looking at Paul's instructions for how to live the Christian life. As, As those who are living sacrifices to God, as those who are not being pressed by the world into its own image, into its mold, but instead are being transformed by the Spirit of God into the likeness of Christ, who are, who are being renewed in mind by the Word of God. How is it that we're supposed to live? And, and in verses 9 through 13 of Romans 12, Paul is giving us these 13 rapid-fire directives for how we live the Christian life, but particularly how we live the Christian life in the context of, of the church, of the local church. We are, Paul has shown us, an interdependent body, members one of another, called by God, gifted by God, to serve one another and be served by one another. But how does that work itself out on a practical level? What, what are the marks of, of this kind of true Christian living? And Paul has has been giving us these, and and in these verses, he gives us these these short statements instructing us. So let's read now together the word of the Lord, Romans chapter 12. Hear the word of the Lord, starting in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. For this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us, your people, that by your Spirit's work through your word, you have caused us to come from death to life. You have opened our blinded eyes and given hearing to our our deaf ears that we might hear the voice of our God, that we might see the glory of our God and know you. By your spirit working through this word, you are transforming us more and more into the likeness of Christ. And so we pray this morning that you would accomplish all of your good purposes in us and through us by your spirit, through your word. I Pray for myself as I proclaim your word that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week in verse 9, we covered the first three of these uh, directives from Paul. Let love be genuine. Again, we saw that, that word that Paul, Paul uses there is unhypocritical. Let, let our love not have any hypocrisy in it, not be wearing a mask of any kind. Abhor what is evil, hate it, turn away from it, reject it in horror, hold fast, be cemented to what is good. And today, we'll look at numbers four and five of these directives in verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. Affection. The, the, the two Greek words that Paul uses in this phrase here are family words. Christian love in the church is familial love. 
It's family love. Love one another. Literally means to be devoted to one another. The the word for love that he uses here is a compound word. Phileo, love, and storge, parent. If you remember, I'm sure you all memorized those four Greek words we talked about last Sunday. So you went, oh, storge, yes, I remember. You said the love a parent has for, I know you didn't. It's this word for warm, affectionate family love. The, the tenderest of love in the closest of relationship. It is the, the love of natural family devotion. That's what Paul says here. It's the love, the, the unbreakable love that a mother has for her children. A love that will do anything for them. This is the natural love that a mother has for her children. That's why it's so shocking to us when we hear cases where that isn't actually what's going on. It, it, it shocks us to hear that. It, it shocks us because it's unnatural. It's unnatural for, for, for there isn't, where, where there isn't this kind of love and care from a mother to her children. The natural way of things is that there is a, an incredible tenderness between parents and their children. Jesus even said so much. Jesus, Jesus said, you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. This is the natural way among all of humanity that there is deep and abiding commitment and love and care from parents to children. And that's the imagery that Paul uses here. Parental love is the very picture of devoted affection. And Paul says to us, Christians in the church, love each other that way. Love each other that way. That kind of devotion and commitment that a parent has for their child. And and then he says more. Love one another in the church with brotherly affection. A second family word for love, it's the word, a word you know, Philadelphia. Love for brothers. Phileo, love, Adelphos, brother. Brotherly love is what we ought to have. This, 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 This is why men who serve in the military together, especially if they've been in combat, it's why those who serve in police work or other frontline dangerous callings often refer to the brotherhood. We've got something in common. Those men who have served in combat together, those men who have been on the front lines in very dangerous situations have a close bond that outsiders cannot understand. They simply can't. They they share something that other people simply don't share with them. And now consider as you look around this room what you share in common with the brothers and sisters who are seated seated around you right now. You were God's enemies. You were hostile towards him. You were at war with him and he with you. You were by natures under the just and righteous condemnation of God. You were enslaved to sin. You were spiritually dead, Paul says in Ephesians 2, but then you were rescued. Then you were redeemed. Your dead heart was given life. We share that with one another. Think about the survivors of some disaster. People people who've been in some kind of life and death situation together and the way that they embrace embrace one another when they come out of that. The closeness and and the kindred feelings they have towards one another. Again, they share something in common that no outsider could possibly understand, and believers, so do we. 
on a much more significant level even, on an eternal level. We were lost, but now we're found. We were dead, but we've been made alive. We were hellbound, but now we're citizens of heaven. We've, we've been united with Christ, hidden in him. We have experienced and are experiencing these, experiencing these things together. All of us together, the same God, the same gospel, the same body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, united together in God himself like members of a physical body. And so Paul says, since that's the reality of your situation, you ought to act that way. You ought to act in keeping with the reality of your situation. We need to cultivate in our experience what we possess in reality. This is true of us, but now we need to work to cultivate our experience of, of what's really true. We read this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown from before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And he says this in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from the heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. What Peter says here is the same thing Paul is telling us that we need to do. The love of God given to us, directs us, it commands us to love one another, to love those who are in Christ. It should be a very natural thing for Christians to love each other. It should be easy to love other Christians just as you love your own flesh and blood. It should be just as easy to love Christians, maybe easier have you ever had the experience of meeting a Christian in an unexpected place? Maybe you're somewhere and you're not expecting to run into a, another believer and, and maybe you're thinking like, how can, I, how can I interject the gospel into this conversation? And maybe they're thinking, how can I interject the gospel into this conversation? And somehow through the course of conversation, you discover, hey, we're both believers. And there's this instant connection. There's this instant bond. There's this instant brotherhood. Your, your heart is so full. You feel so connected to this stranger that you just met. Because there's this instant brotherhood that you have with them. It, it ought to be natural for us to feel that way towards other Christians. It ought to be natural for us to be devoted to them. These bonds that, that God has forged between us as believers are unbreakable bonds in reality. So, so we must not treat them as though they're disposable things. We, we, we must not. They've been designed by Christ himself to be enduring. The, the ties that bind us together in the church are eternal ties. And Paul doesn't leave any loopholes here for the believer. There, there's no exemptions from what what Paul says here with this command to, to love and be devoted to one another with this kind of familial 
unbreakable love. He says, love one another like brothers. Be devoted to one another as a parent is to a child. This is not optional. This is not optional for the believer. He doesn't say, do these things unless you don't like the music. Do these things unless they do one tiny thing you don't like. And then by all means, cut them out of your life. There are other fish in the sea. Do these things, but if you don't like anything, look, there's 15 more churches within 20 minutes of you. No, he doesn't give us those options. He's revealed to us for 11 chapters the work that God has done in, in saving us out of the filth we were living in, uniting us to Christ. And now he's revealed we've been united to one another. And Paul says, Christian, live like it. Act like it. Think like it. John said this kind of love is, is inescapable. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever loves the Father... Whoever loves the Father loves whoever, the, uh, whoever has been born of him. I did a really good job reading that verse. Going to read it again. Whoever loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. It says in, in, in chapter 4, verse 20 of 1 John, if anyone says, I love God but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That's how serious it is. That's how, that's how much our love for our brother, for our sister, actually reveals about our heart and our standing before God. The, the, these two words that Paul uses here in Romans chapter 12 indicate intense, devoted, unbreakable love. And when the world looks at us, that's what they ought to see. That's what they ought to see in our lives, in our dealing with one another, is this kind of love. The world ought to look in from the outside on the church and see Christians warmly and affectionately feeling and expressing deep, heartfelt family love for one another. Sadly, often what the world sees, whether it be in our conversations with them, examining the things we post on social media, the world sees Christians taking shots at each other. It sees us subtweeting one another. Oh, I didn't say their name, but everybody knows you're talking about the Christians in this local church. That, that, that's what the world sees, and that ought not be. C consider the people around you this morning. What, what has brought this group of people together right now Many of us wouldn't have sought out each other's friendships. We've, we, we, it didn't used to be this way in this church, but we now have a wide swath of ages in this church. We, we don't have that natural affinity. We're all in the same stage of life. We've all worked the same kind of jobs. We've all got the same backgrounds. That's not the case anymore. What is it that's brought us together? The Lord has sought us. The Lord has saved us. The Lord has sovereignly placed us in the community of the redeemed. He has made us brothers and sisters. He has made us to be family. And the Holy Spirit's work of renewing our minds and hearts produces in us affection for those whom God has saved. That's the work of God in us. But friends, this... This, the, the Holy Spirit is producing that in Christians, but it has to be cultivated. 
It has to be worked on. We have to expend energy in that direction. It, it ought to be natural for us. On some level, it is natural for us. It's because it's produced in us by the Holy Spirit within us who has who shed abroad the love of God in our hearts. So there is a, a sense in which this is just a, a work of the Holy Spirit in us that just comes naturally to all Christians, but this love has to be intentionally cultivated, Paul says to us here. That's why he gives us a command in verse 10. If it was a thing we would just slide into, Paul wouldn't have to tell us to do it. We never have an instruction as we go from Romans 12 forward to breathe. It's just a natural thing. Paul doesn't need to remind us of that. He doesn't need to command us to breathe. He does need to command us to love one another the way we ought to. We have to cultivate it. We have to work at it. He says, love, be devoted to one another with brotherly affection. The reason he has to do that is because we don't always do it. We backslide in this. Our devotion to one another leaks. We have to be constantly filling it back up, reminding ourselves. Sometimes we just get comfortable in our relationships and we start to say things we ought not say. We start to think of each other in ways we ought not to think of one another. Maybe we just get lazy. Maybe we are selfish in our relationships. We, we forget the big picture. We forget who we were. We forget who we now are. And so it's easy for us to be harsh with our brothers and sisters. It's easy for us to become frustrated with them. We forget the true identity of those around us. We look around the church and we forget who these people are. What, what, what amount of love God has for them to rescue them and to save them. We forget that this is his, his son, his daughter. Beloved by God. A fellow heir with Christ. Maybe, Christian, you've even lost sight of the, the very privilege of having deep Christian friendships. And so it's easy for you to not invest yourself in them. To not invest yourself in those relationships. You're peripheral in the life of the church. You don't, you don't, you don't value this enough so you don't take responsibility for yourself to cultivate these relationships you just insist everyone comes to you. And you'll complain about it when they don't. Well, nobody calls me. Nobody comes looking for me. Nobody comes up to me. You insist that you be catered to by everyone else. Well, friend, if that's you, it could be possible that you have been squeezed into the mold of this world so much that you no longer value deep, true Christian fellowship enough to pursue it. God commands us these things. He instructs us in these things because he loves us. Because it's good for us. Because it's, it's what we were made for. So, so how do we cultivate this? If we're supposed to cultivate this, if we're supposed to, to grow in it, how do, we, how do we cultivate and grow in a devotion to brotherly love? Well, it starts with the things Paul has already outlined for us in this chapter. First, in order to cultivate this and grow in this, we must offer our entire life to God as a living sacrifice. We, we must do that. You don't live for yourself. 
You don't live for your own pleasure. You live your life as an offering of worship before God. You are far more concerned with pleasing Him than pleasing yourself. The most important thing in your world is to please God, to offer yourself to Him in worship. And you reorient your mind and your desires, verse 2 says. Resisting the world's temptation to squeeze you into its image and being instead transformed into the image of Christ through the renewal of your mind by the Holy Spirit, being transformed in the inner man by the truths in God's Word. You do it, verse 3 says, by seeking to grow in true humility, not, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to, but judging ourselves with sober judgment. We do it by commitment to what we see in verses 4 and 5, understanding the church rightly. Understanding the church as an interconnected body, that we are members one of another, gifted and called to serve one another and be served by one another. By, by understanding when we look at our fellow Christian, how it goes with them affects me, and how it goes with me affects them. Th- th- this is how we cultivate brotherly love that verse 9 says is without hypocrisy. Th- this is how we, we do this. To, to do this, though, we need an eternal perspective. We need to see things as they really are. It's so easy for us to have that, that earthly perspective. We just, what we see with our eyes, what we hear with our ears, and, and we forget all about what God has declared to be eternally true. What's eternally true, Christian, about the fellow Christians in this room? Well, what's temporarily true is you may or may not have personal affinity with them when it comes to your personalities or where you're at in your life or the way you like to do things or the traditions you were raised with. That's temporarily true. What's eternally true is this. You are brothers and sisters forever, for all of eternity. If that's what's eternally true, if that's what's really true, 10,000 years from now, how will you feel about the way you cared for them? When the temporary is gone, how, how will you wish you had carried, cared for them? How will you wish you had thought of them? How will you wish you had spoken of them or spoken to them? What, what a tragedy it is in light of what God has revealed to be eternally true, really true, the solid truths. What a tragedy in light of that when petty personal offenses separate brothers and sisters in Christ. What a horrible thing. What a tragic thing. But but it takes work. It takes work to walk in unity with one another, doesn't it? Because you can be annoying. I know I can be annoying. We have to work at it. We have to work at the unity that God has called us to, that God has, has... has brought us into. It takes humble, genuine, self-sacrificial love and commitment to put other people before ourselves if we're going to walk in this kind of love that God has not only called us to, saved us into, created us for, but commands us to. And this commitment that we're called to, it never shows itself until times are hard. 
That's when we really see. Until there's some disagreement, until there is some offense that has occurred, that's when the genuineness of our love is proved. Because it's, it's simple when you agree with someone. But it's in those times of disagreement, it's in those times of offense that we see of our own hearts whether we are motivated by humility or pride. There is a direct correlation, friend, between how easily offended you are and how much you genuinely believe you're the center of the universe. God's people ought to be the most difficult people to offend. Humble people are hard to offend. Arrogant people get offended at everything. This brings us to the second half of this verse. Paul's fifth mark of the true Christian. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. We're, we're to excel. We're, we're to outdo everyone else. We are to be the very, very best at what? At showing honor to others. At giving preference to others. At, at esteeming others. At putting their needs, and listen, their wants ahead of your own. Making sure they're, they feel valued. Making sure they know that they're valued. Making sure that they're cared for. This is a very tall order. We can hear these things and go, yes, absolutely. But when it comes to day-to-day to -day living, this is a very, very difficult thing. Picture yourself standing in a long, slow line at the grocery store. Someone perhaps didn't see you coming and didn't know you were the rightful next person in line. And they just came in from the side and swooped in. The girl with her blue lipstick is showing pictures of her cat to everybody in line, checking them out at the register. It's adding lots of time. That happened to Hannah and I the other day. We walked away from the register at Meyer and went, what? What just happened? What did we just witness? But of course, I handle it graciously and perfectly. When you're standing in that long line at the grocery store, do you value others' people's need to get through the line more highly than you value your own? When you're in that long line of traffic in the parking lot and people are driving in a way that makes you call them names, do you value their life and their time and their need to get on with whatever they're doing as much as you value your own? In fact, more than you value your own? What about when you're just driving down the road and that person is driving so slow and we don't know why? I know these are bad questions. These are meddling questions. We're free to be monsters during those times, I know. What about your preferences in the church versus other people's preferences in the church? I'm not talking about the clear teachings of Scripture about how, how the corporate worship of the, the people of God ought to be done. I'm just talking about preferences. This is the kind of music I like, and this is the kind of music I hate. Do, do, do you consider your preferences more highly than everyone else's? What extra things should we be doing or not doing? Do you consider your preferences more highly than everyone else's? What about the temperature of the building? Do you consider your preferences more highly than everyone else's? It is so easy to put ourselves first, isn't it? We don't even know we're doing it. 
We think we're right for doing it. James Montgomery Boyce says this, instead of thinking about other Christians and appreciating other Christians and what they're doing, our minds are usually on ourselves and we are resentful that we are not sufficiently recognized or appreciated. Therefore, we're jealous of other Christians. Great harm has been done by such jealousy. Ministries have been seriously weakened. Churches have split. Valuable causes have been set back for generations and sometimes set back for good. Friends, it is hard work to resist pride and humbly serve one another. Humbly love and honor one another. It's hard work. Yes, the the Spirit of God is, is driving us towards that. But it must be cultivated. We must work at it. This verse doesn't just command us to give preference to one another. We are called to strive to be the best at it. The very best. How would you respond if you met your favorite celebrity today? Or your favorite sports hero? Your favorite author? Your favorite president? Even your least favorite president? A world-class musician. Maybe you're a nerd. Your, your favorite celebrity preacher. Would, would you listen closely to... I looked right at Austin when I said, Austin, there was no hate in that. I don't know what happened there. You'd listen closely to what they said, wouldn't you? you know, maybe you'd offer to get them a drink. Maybe you'd... You, you'd defer to whatever they wanted to do. Most likely you would bend over backwards to, to honor them, to, to, to meet their needs and their desires, to show them how much it means to you to be meeting them. You'd, you'd set aside your own interests for their interests and you'd be happy to do it. You, you'd do everything you could to make sure that they were treated with honor. Well, Christian, what Paul calls us to do is to outdo one another in showing honor to one another. In other words, you you are supposed to see every member of the body of believers as one who is deserving of your highest honor. As you look around this room this morning, is that how you have thought about these people? I'm not saying right now. Now you're going to look around and be like, yes, I absolutely How's your track record look? Is that how you have thought of them? Or do some of them annoy you? Are there some you just simply don't like? Are there some you've got no patience for to the point that you've actually verbalized complaints about them? How do you know you're not doing what Paul commanded you to do? Have you ever complained about someone in church before? And the answer is, for all of us, yep, I have. We must cultivate this. We must work at this. This requires constant repentance, constant renewal of the mind. This is our call. This is our call, friends. This is our command from God, that we would look around this room and consider everyone we see, including the youngest of children, to be of greater importance to be of higher status, to be of greater honor and more value than ourselves. That's our call from God. 
And there's not a one of us who lives up to that 100% of the time. But it is our call, and we are responsible to this command from God. Nobody gets a pass. Our call is to, to look at one another and choose to see each other that way and then to work hard to outdo one another in showing honor. Think of all the things that athletes do to get a competitive edge, how they work, how they, they wake up early to train, they eat a strict diet, they study, they prepare, they strategize, they condition themselves just to get some small edge over their opponents. Some, some even go so far as to take morally questionable tactics. They cheat. They take performance-enhancing drugs. If they're the Houston Astros, they steal signs from their opponents. If they're the Patriots, they deflate footballs. Yeah, yeah that was my first amen of the morning. Think of the businessmen as they strive for the competitive edge. How can I beat my competitors? How can I acquire a larger market share? They work hard on these things. They work hard for these things. And the world runs on this kind of ambition. Unfortunately, in the world, this ambition is usually motivated by a desire for self-exaltation. I want to make more money. I want to gain more power, more notoriety. I want more respect. I want more fame. But the Christian ambition is different. Christian ambition is what? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, we make it our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. That's what's driving the Christian. And so it's this humble ambition to be pleasing to the Lord combined with love for others that causes us to compete with one another, to compete to show more honor to one another than anyone else. To be the one who, 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 who is constantly working to cultivate and grow in this. To be the best at showing honor to one another. That takes hard, self-sacrificial, dying-to-self work. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on this passage, says, To have this attitude, this attitude about doing one another and showing honor, is a blow against personal pride. Pride makes this impossible. It's the very opposite of how the world works. It's the very opposite of how the world thinks and how the world operates. It is not our natural tendency. Our natural tendency is what? It's still to compete, but it's to compete to honor self, not to compete to honor others. We, we live in a self-absorbed world, and the reason we live in a self-absorbed world is because we are all born in sin to be lovers of self, and so this is the world we quite naturally created for ourselves. And our call, our command, believers, is to be the exact opposite, to do the exact opposite. To be, to be so committed to showing honor to one another that we almost take a competitive approach. We want that badly to show genuine love and care and honor for one another. But this is not to be empty flattery. It's not to be empty words of honor. You know, flatter, uh, gossip is, is when you 
When you say something behind a person's back that you wouldn't say to their face, flattery is when you say something to their face that you wouldn't say behind their back. It's not us just trying to tell each other how great we are and how we're the best and we're number one. No, it is to truly believe and to cultivate that belief that no one is below you. There is no one beneath you. First Timothy 1, Paul calls himself the foremost of sinners, or the chief of sinners, depending on your translation. He, he's aware of his own dependence on grace. This is what grace does for us. He's, he's aware of his own continued sin against a holy God, and it produces in him genuine humility. He does not think he's better or more deserving than anybody. This, friends, is the gospel's call to us. This is the fruit of the gospel's work in us. To, to truly consider others more highly than yourself, you have to truly believe that no one is beneath you. Consider all other believers as a, as a higher rank than you, of their needs being more important than theirs, of their preferences being given higher consideration than your preferences. to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. So it's really Romans chapters 1 through 11 that provides the fuel for obeying these commands that Paul's giving us now in the way we ought to love one another. The gospel, the message of God's saving of undeserving sinners through the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, not because of any inherent goodness in ourselves, but because of his own Sovereign love and grace and choosing. This is gospel truth that, that produces and empowers this godly ambition in us. And of course, Christ himself serves as our greatest example in this. I want to just close with two passages. First is Philippians chapter 2. Just hear the word of the Lord here. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. In John chapter 13, we see the most striking picture of this condescension of Christ down to, to serve us, taking on the form of a servant. John chapter 13 verse 1 tells us this. Is the, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Verse 3 says, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel and tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet 
and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he washed their feet, put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That's our call. To follow Christ's example empowered by his Holy Spirit, in outdoing one another in showing honor and family love and devotion to one another. Christ's example is taking the lowest form. It's not just that, that the, the second person of the triune God had condescended to take on human flesh, which is the greatest act of humility imaginable. But then even in doing that, he didn't, he didn't become a king he didn't come to, to a wealthy family, which still would have been a mind-blowing condescension. We're talking about the God of all glory who made all things, who sustains all things by the word of his power. But he came in such a way that common men, fishermen said, don't lower yourself like this. Jews aren't even fit to do this act of service that you're doing. That's the example he set for us in serving one another. And it's not just that we're commanded to do it. Jesus himself said, blessed are you if you do. What an honor, what a privilege it is to, to be a part of the family of God, to be called brothers and sisters together in the local church, to serve one another and outdo one another in showing honor. There is no greater blessing in this life than to be a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, the glory of your gospel is beyond our imagination. The love of Christ showered upon us is more than we can comprehend. Your grace to us in in salvation, your grace to us and placing us in a family are so amazing to us. And yet, Lord, we acknowledge that it's easy for us to lose sight of what's eternally true, of what's most important, of the most solid of realities, and instead we, we are easily conformed to the likeness of this world in our thinking, and we, we take lightly what you have done. We take lightly what you have called us to. We we repent of that. We turn from that. Lord, in my life, I acknowledge how easy it is for me to do that. And I repent and I turn and I, I ask you by your spirit, Lord, to, to produce greater faithfulness in me and in us as a church. We make it our ambition to be pleasing to you. Pray, God, that you would make us a church marked by family love for one another, by humility by outdoing one another and showing honor, that we would do this not just so we can all feel good, but so that you would be glorified, so the light of the glory of your gospel would shine brightly in us and through us, we pray. Be glorified in us.
In Jesus' name, amen.